Hello and welcome to This Way Up. In this series, I talk to a number of leading women in the creative industry, talking specifically about the good, the bad and the ugly of their careers. For this episode, I interviewed Hong Kong restaurateur Lindsay Yang, who is behind some of Hong Kong's hottest restaurants. I've always been fascinated by restaurateurs simply because to be a successful one, you need to combine a lot of different and varied skill sets from branding to creating an atmosphere and of course making sure you can serve up delicious food. It's also notoriously super hard to make a success of it. And in this episode, I got exactly that with Lindsay. She talked me through her entire journey into the restaurant business, creating not one, but three successful restaurants, Yardbird, Ronin, and Rotitori. And having eaten at Yardbird, I can say firsthand how amazing the experience is. Originally from Canada, we discussed Lindsay's upbringing and her different influences, including working at her parents' restaurant and how it led to finding her passion as a restaurateur. She also credits working every single job there is at the super exclusive and world famous restaurant Nobu for teaching her everything she needed to know about the restaurant business. It was there that she started creating the master plan for setting up her own restaurant and after a few years of fine tuning, she took the plunge and hasn't looked back. What strikes me with Lindsay is her ability to learn from the best around her, but also her confidence to pick and choose what would work best for her restaurants, which she successfully managed by creating fun, exciting and unique restaurants that has certainly resonated with the Hong Kong scene. And as usual, we go through a lot more. We discuss how she's traveled the world with a newborn before starting her restaurants, the benefit of going to drama school in order to learn the art of bullshitting, and why competitiveness with others is a complete waste of time. She has an amazing career story that is different to most, for sure. I found this conversation fascinating, and I hope you do too. So, without further ado, this is This Way Up, and this is Lindsay Yang. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. We've been trying to set up this interview for quite some time now. In fact, it was, I think, in January when I uh, was in Hong Kong, went to your amazing restaurant, and there wasn't a pandemic at the time. Oh, yeah, those days. <laughs> They're long gone. As I said, I got to experience your lovely restaurant, and uh, which we're going to talk about uh, today. But before we go into where you are today, I would love to talk about uh, where you are from and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will keep it as concise as possible. (laughs) I was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, from my mom, who's a seventh generation Scottish Canadian. She was born uh, on the West Coast, so Vancouver Island, where she lives now again. My father immigrated from Hong Kong to Alberta which is super random, in 1961. And so he is, I'm first generation on my dad's side. Right. And I, let me just think about how to phrase this. So grew up in Edmonton. My parents met there while they were both in university at the University of Alberta. And then fast forward to 1981, I was born. Yeah, there was a huge economic recession. My father was a civil is a civil engineer was practicing civil engineering at the time. My mom is a is a special education teacher. And my dad got laid off. And so my mom went to work. And my dad stayed home with me when I was little, like, Mm -hmm. I guess, my, my very early years, actually. And, and then my they won a lottery the year I was born at um, basically there's this traveling carnival that I'm sure most North Americans or Westerners know where, you know, every summer it comes to your town for seven to 10 days and 
you know, it's the carnival rides and games and prizes and all that kind of stuff. And my dad, you know, had, is a gambler at heart, whether that's the Asian in him, I'm not <laughs> sure. He always just, you know, he went to buy the, the draw, the lucky draw, which was like, you know, a dream home, a right. pickup truck, a whatever. And so there was one, one prize, um, it's called Klondike Days, and it still exists in Edmonton right. every summer. Um, although I don't know if it does in COVID. So anyway, <laughs> it used to. So, uh, there's a, there's a prize which isn't there anymore, but it was called the gold brick. So you literally won a gold brick or you okay. won a hundred thousand Canadian dollars. And so right. I think my, they won, they literally won That's that amazing. Prize. the year I was born. I was born in October and they won it in July. So I was, wasn't even a year old. Um, wow. I think my dad took the cash cause gold was down in the eighties or yeah. in the early eighties and he banked it basically, um, put that money in the bank, just held on to it till, you know, he figured out what to do with it. My dad and his side of the family have a very immigrant mentality because obviously they are immigrants and they were very, very poor. And so mm. it wasn't like you win the lottery and you go and spend it on something, you know, you win the lottery yeah. and you save that money. Yeah. So wow. then 1984 came and my sister was born. And at that point, my dad was basically like, listen, I hate civil engineering. I went to university because my parents wanted him and his four siblings to be educated. That's why they immigrated to Canada in the first place. But I just, I don't like it. So he bought a restaurant and he grew wow. up in restaurants. My grandparents till literally, I swear, this is a little bit hyperbolic, but not much. Till the day they died, they ran a restaurant. That's amazing. And all they ever wanted was their children to not have to work that life, obviously. Um, so fast forward 1984, maybe 1985, my dad buys a Cantonese Canadian restaurant just outside of Edmonton in a hamlet called Sherwood Park, which is where right. I really grew up. I, we moved from Edmonton to Sherwood Park in 1988, the year my, sec my third sister was born. Uh, we moved so that my dad could be closer to work. Um, so we grew up in a beautiful, like gorgeous suburb, tons of land and space and all the things you imagine in rural Canada. Yeah, I can imagine it. Um, and we grew up like living this restaurant life. My dad was always at work. You know, we grew up pretending to be waitresses, maturing into waitresses. Our boyfriends were the delivery drivers. Our <laughs> friends worked there too. It was like, you know, living I and yeah, breathing, <laughs> living and breathing. Um, and you know, it was I think one of two. Chinese rest Chinese food restaurants in in our town and like the town was about a hundred to two hundred thousand people it's grown exponentially now like it's I think over half a million it, wow. there's a lot of oil and gas in that area like where I grew up it's all refineries and and oil and gas business so there's mm -hmm. a lot of money but it's also extremely um I don't know the politically correct term for redneck. <laughs> I you don't say, have to say it. <laughs> I can picture it. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't want to make a sweeping generalization because definitely not everyone is a redneck. But where I grew up, it, like Sherwood Park is, call it, I don't know, 20 kilometers. I don't even know where they draw the boundaries anymore. But, you know, let's call it a 20-minute drive from Edmonton. Edmonton's the capital. Yep. Um, however, you go from Edmonton, which has an extremely diverse population of Asian, Indian, um, what, all kinds of, all kinds of ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And then you go to Sherwood Park and it's basically, it's more affluent. I think like the, at that time, the average household income was, was, um, considerably higher than in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's no diversity, like zero. Right. I think there was one other Asian oh, gosh. family in my high school. And like literally 
like a handful of of other races. It was extremely, extremely white. Yeah. Um, wow. So not so, fun. <laughs> well, you know, at the time, all I wanted to be was white. All my friends yeah. were white, blonde, blue, blue eyes. Like I didn't see myself in anybody. I can um, imagine. But it that it actually didn't that didn't if anything you know in retrospect it didn't hinder any anything about who I became. In fact, I you know of course there were uh, moments of like I just didn't feel pretty or you didn't feel like you fit in or you don't mm. look like anybody else. But that's also I mean I was still student council president and you know all the other things you're, you know, you do socially when you're in high school. And it wasn't, I wasn't being, um, I guess, excluded. It was my own perception of exclusion, just what I was dealing with. But it was great because it also just like, I knew that the minute I graduated high school, like I was gone. I left. Yeah. Um, I did, I had scholarships, um, so I went, I did one semester of university in Edmonton just because my dad, like, you know, his heart was my, my dad is such a sensitive person, although he would never admit it. <laughs> He's like, you know, tough as nails on the outside. But, you know, the last thing he, I think he said to me once that, and this is a, it, totally something my dad would say is I never would have had children if I knew they were going to leave. <laughs> and like if you wow. know my dad it, it's it's funny because it's not what he means but he's like you know that whole heartbreak of that like they just leave you and now what this is a new chapter but he wasn't ready for that um so anyway after high school I did a semester then I moved south to Calgary which is the other big city in Alberta and just because like there's no way my dad would have been able to stomach me going further than that, like (laughs) for the first time. So I remember I think first, let's say six months after I graduated high school, I'd already completed a semester at university. I transferred to art school in Calgary, did a semester of that, totally hated it. Went to university of Calgary, did a semester of business management also just, I was bored and I, my mind was not ready for, like, I had just done all of high school. I was a straight A honor student, but it wasn't, I wasn't interested in furthering my, my institutional education. Sure. I was ready. I just wanted to explore and I wanted to see what was going on in the world outside of the world mm. that I grew up in. Not that there's anything yeah. wrong with that. So anyway, I went to Calgary, did another year of, of school just because I was like, well, maybe it's the program I'm in. Maybe it's right. not school. Um, and so, you know, of course, coming from an Asian family, it's like, well, you're supposed to be a doctor. You're supposed to be a lawyer <laughs> or God forbid, just be a pharmacist. Like, just do something where we know you're going to make an average income of this and you will be recession proof and X, Y, Z. So... Then I, then I left Calgary, I moved to New York City, and I went to theater school, which, of course, checked no boxes for my dad. Um, and also and very different, again, I love how you just jump from one yeah. subject to different subjects. That was, yeah, that seemingly, seemed, that seemingly appears to be random, but when I was in Calgary... I also was really, really into snowboarding and like I worked in a snow and skate shop for a long time. Um, And while I was doing that, I was hosting an extreme sports show for like a local cable. Oh, wow. And then when I was little, yeah, I mean, it it all, it's, it's weird how things come together over, over decades. Um, Yeah, when I was little, we used to do, like, commercials and, like, local modeling and stuff like that. Because, again, we were, like, the only Eurasian kids, I'm sure, for God knows how far and wide. So that that whole thing, when I I realized I wanted to live in New York, and it wasn't because I wanted to be an actor. It was just because I wanted to live in New York. And I figured, you know, that was the most diverse place on the planet I could think of where English was still the first language. Mm. And I was on the same continent as my 
family. Um, yeah. And so the easiest way to get into the U.S., this was literally, I moved to New York in August of 2012. So this was literally post 9-11, where mm. they had just... Uh, they just created the Department of Homeland Security. It didn't even exist before that. And right. then, so anyway, the, when from a logistical perspective, I had to go in. The easiest way to go in was as a student. So I went in as a student. And the easiest sure. school to get accepted to where you really didn't have to, like, be graded on anything was theater school. <laughs> so I <laughs> went to theater school. <laughs> um which has honestly paid off so much just in all facets of life. Tell me how. To. I mean, I think my ability to lead, get up in front of crowds, you know, public mm. speak, um, um, improvise, you know, bullshit. Half half the time when you're an entrepreneur, you're building a business, you, you're faking it until you make it. And there's nothing that prepares you more for that than studying theater and like being completely vulnerable in front of people you've never met before, being critiqued by some 70-year-old, you know, film star who's now just teaching part-time because they're bored, like... <laughs> You know, to really put yourself out there and, and be okay with being criticized or, you know, quite honestly, like, it, it was just a really funny time. In yeah, my life, but. that makes that makes complete sense. And I think it's a really good piece of advice for anyone. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yes. You want to become Join an entrepreneur. An group. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. That's brilliant. Yeah, and so, well, that led to... Um, that led to actually I, I got an, a full commercial agent. I was actually auditioning and I, you know, was going out for like, I think at like the best when I was actually into it, like I had not convinced myself, but I think like anything else, once you're absorbed into something, like I was now, my friends were theater people and uh, everyone was talking mm. about auditions, you know, like you become immersed in that culture. And so you're like, oh, well, cool, let's do that. Let's put on a play together. Let's let's make a short film. Let's submit it to Sundance. Like, you know, all these things just become on, things that are on your radar and you're involved also, in it. What's really interesting is actually that's quite entrepreneurial in itself, isn't it? Because, you know, making a film from scratch and yeah. raising that kind money of stuff. For it. Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah, so I did all that stuff. And then the the practical person in me, uh, at this, so while I'm in theater school, while I'm auditioning, while I'm making short films, while I'm putting on theater shows, um, I was also waitressing and then bartending and then managing this Mexican restaurant, uh, right, okay. in Soho. Yeah. Or like right on Houston and, and, um, Houston and Broadway. Sure. Like there. So anyway. Just above Soho. And I remember I worked there for like, I think, three years. And like, to be fair, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. They're not there anymore. But <laughs> I was also allowed to work there as, a, you know, someone who wasn't allowed to work. Gotcha. <laughs> um, which was, again, like you fast forward to the days that we're living in now and it's so different and we're still in the same century, you know, like, yeah. you know, and I think Crazy. this is a whole other conversation, but the backbone of America is immigrant work, you know, mm. you don't find anyway, another topic. So I, <laughs> I was, I was doing that and then I was kind of just getting bored with the acting stuff. Just like, ugh, like I, I need results. I want to do something this yeah, and I, I'm not, it, the rejection didn't bother me. Like, it wasn't, I wasn't hurt or my ego wasn't bruised every time I didn't get a role. But it was more just like the progress and like the time I was putting in wasn't equal to the progress I was making. Mm. And so I was that's like, a, yeah. That sounds really interesting if we can pause there because yeah. um, most people that would go into theater school, they would probably get really disheartened by not getting the, 
you know, the job, the acting role, etc. But I love that with you, you just focused on the results and not getting anywhere. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think because when you look at something so subjective, like acting, like art, mm. like music, you know, something where you there has to be uh you know you have to have that spark with the casting director or the person you're auditioning next to you know and, and for every role i did get you know someone else beside me who was probably better than me didn't because whatever whatever happened that mm. day wasn't so i never like i never i'm also not a competitive person at all i don't really I, if I if I use the word compete, it's generally, you know, with myself or with something that we could do better at, but never mm. against. I don't I don't like the idea of competition. Um, That's great. Cause, again, that's surprising for an entrepreneur because you know what you see in the news is entrepreneurs being extremely competitive with each other. Yeah, and I, I guess, okay, I mean, I'm a Libra, so I'm a balance, like, okay. I'm a scale by nature, and I, I'm i also the oldest of three girls, mm. and I've done yoga for over 20 years of my life, which I think wow. has very much, like, flattened my, how does it say, flattened my curve. <laughs> you I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> But like it, it's it's made. I don't focus so much on the. I try. I shouldn't say I don't. I really make an effort to not focus on the peaks and valleys in such a in such a short term, finite mm. way. Like to me, you again, you get to, and this comes with age as well. I think ten years ago, these words wouldn't have been coming out of my mouth in the same way, but like. You know, there's no point in competing, right? Nothing that we're doing, at least most people. You have some people who are doing brand new things, right? They're exploring space in brand new ways. They're creating technology that are solving problems in in revolutionary ways. But for the most most of us, most of us entrepreneurs or mm-hmm. most most people in general, you know, we're not reinventing wheels. We might be like refurbishing the wheel or like mm-hmm. decorating the wheel but i think it's it's very narcissistic to think that i mean okay competition is healthy you know if if someone opens a yakitori restaurant right next door to me and basically you know is trying to cannibalize my business yeah i would be upset and be like that's and I wouldn't understand that reasoning as well. Like, I'd just be like, that's stupid to me. But it's like, okay, fine. There's no point in being competitive. I think no. you waste your time on, on the more time you spend watching what other people are doing and tracking what other people are making is the less, is less time you have to focus on what you're doing. And of course that doesn't mean that I don't look at other things or, have moments of like, like everyone else of like, Oh God, she's so pretty. Oh man, she's so young. Oh wow. They're so rich. Of course that's human nature. Mm. But in general, I, I really don't subscribe to that kind of like thought pattern. Yeah. And I can agree more. I think it's a really good piece of advice for anyone. Um, I just loved what you just said about, you know, the more you focus on them or who, whatever it is that you're jealous of, you know, the less time you have for your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's exactly right. I just think it's so much more important to focus on yourself. And it's interesting that you mentioned yoga because it is true that being more sort of at ease with yourself and 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 sort of um, have a bit of kind of, I associate yoga with meditation, if you would agree, like sort of more introspective, mm-hmm. then it's a sort of much easier way to sort of see things. And also I find that you're happier because of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the less that you are competing internally or externally with things you can't control or people you don't know, you know, there's no point. It, yeah. There's really no point. Like, 
you know, you might post a picture of yourself and like, I don't know how edited that is. I don't know what you did to get to that. And I don't know what your day was like before or after you took that photo. Like, yeah, the whole toxicity of social media and media in general, it's just obviously grown because of social media. But I think it's absolutely entertaining. I use it all the time for business Mm -hmm. and for pleasure. But I also really put a filter or a screen between myself and how um, emotionally connected I get to that content. Like, I really try not to, it's, it can't, it doesn't, I try not to let it get too deep in my psyche because it's just not healthy. Yeah, no, and I get that completely. And that's a really good piece of advice as well. Um. Just to go back to the timeline, and um, I'm also really keen to hear how you started your first restaurant. So yeah, you were you were in theatre school, and so and you were getting bored. So what came next? So I was I was working at this Mexican spot, mm. and I after like I don't know two and a half years there, I was a manager at that point. Um, And, like, keep in mind that my upbringing in my parents' restaurant, you know, nothing was fancy at all. Like, we're talking, Mm. I had never been to, you know, a fine dining restaurant in my life. Um, So then all of a sudden I'm in New York and I'm working in this, you know, not a fine dining Mexican restaurant. And I had, like, I think over the course of two weeks, maybe even less, I had, like, two customers who were regulars tell me, why do you work here? Like you should, you're in New York city. You should be working at like a, you know, a beautiful hotel or a four or five star New York times restaurant. Like, why are you here? And I, I didn't mm-hmm. understand it. And I was like, Oh, haha, Thanks. But I had never, I didn't know that. I didn't know that world. And, and then I had always looked at hospitality as a means to an end. A way to pay my rent or a way Mm -hmm. to eat. Like it was not, not, not enjoyable because I was, I could do it easily, but it wasn't a passion. It was just easy. Mm -hmm. And so then someone else I worked with uh, told me, they were like, Lindsay, you really should go work somewhere like more (laughs) polished than this, more prestigious. Like, you know, you, you have a gift in hospitality or you have a knack for it at least. So you should, you're, you should try and after that, I was like, okay, like, what have I got to lose? I could, and I think at that time they were like, do you know how much money you could make as a waiter at like somewhere right. uptown? And I was like, oh, really? And so at that point, I also had a work visa, a real one. Right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know, like now, now technically the USA is my oyster and I can go and like do something, um, wherever I want to without this condition of like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So I went home and I went on Craigslist and I, this, I had, I saw a posting for Nobu 57, which was their flagship. They were opening it in Midtown Mm. and I didn't even apply anywhere else. I don't know why I chose that. I think I saw a photo of one of their dishes in timeout about announcing right. their new restaurant. Literally, again, like, for no reason. Just saw it. Then I saw the posting on Craigslist. And I was kind of like, you know what? Fuck it. I've heard of this place, Nobu, before. Like, it seems to be, like, reputable. And yeah, it's very reputable. So I faxed a cover letter and I said, I, my, 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 the GM who hired me is one of my really good friends now, but I faxed this letter and I said, um, I have no experience in fine dining, but if you meet me, I'm sure you will hire me. And that was it. And then I attached <laughs> my resume and, and then I went for the interview and they hired me and they told me. I mean, the cool thing about Nobu, which is also very similar to Starbucks or a McDonald's in that matter, and this is a compliment to Nobu, not a diss, but yeah. like their their training and their their procedures and how they do things is just out of this world. 
And so when they hire, they're not looking for people who are like jaded or experienced from like all other kinds of jobs. They actually love to train you from zero. Mm. And so they hired me and this guy, Howard, uh, he said to me, he's like, listen, I know you've been a waitress forever or server, whatever. I can't, I think he said server because it's politically correct. Right. And he said, I'll just let you know that it usually could take like almost a year from where you start here to becoming a server on the floor. And I said, okay, sure. I mean, I'm confident I can move faster than that, but I understand. <laughs> and, and I was a server within six weeks. And then, Oh my God. Wow. I was the captain, which is basically like a floor manager, I think within right. like three months. Um, and that was just like the best thing I ever did honestly was take that step to to just dare to do something I was I thought I was completely unqualified for um so that was it was amazing I I learned everything I I also basically volunteered I worked two jobs there so I was a captain on the floor which meant like working service you know full-time five shifts a week. And then I was also, I decided I wanted to learn the special events department because obviously Nobu, especially in New York city, it's just like high brow clientele and, you know, CEOs and celebrity and VIP and all this stuff. And do not get me wrong. I'm not enamored by that part of it at all. But what I did learn was like, wow, all the intricacies of dealing with all these different kinds of people, like, all these personalities and demands and you know Mm. you can handle that kind of that kind of clientele where every single person not only feels entitled but half the time they are you know like um yeah Yeah. if if Beyonce wants to eat dinner at 3 p.m while we're closed well we open you know shit like that (laughs) I'm not saying I'm not saying she did that too often no I know what you mean but like you know you mean so I saw that as an opportunity to not only learn the event side of things, which I'd never ever experienced. So on-site events, off-site events, catering. I remember we did this Guggenheim event where they built this, like I don't know, 30,000 square foot structure in the middle of Central Park. And everything had to be built on site. Everything, the kitchen, the dining, the, the sanitation, mm-hmm. like it was insane. So I did that and I when by the time I was ready to leave Nobu because I was pregnant with my daughter, I had worked my way through the entire floor as well as the entire event department and was working between both locations in New York. And I had just literally felt like I had learned everything I needed to mm-hmm. and I was like ready to just close that chapter and be like, I'm done with hospitality. There's nowhere else I would work. There's no one else I would work for. Like, interesting. No, it was the best. I, and I mean, I say that to this day. Um, and I still keep in touch with lots of people that mm. I worked with there. Um, and so then I quit. And I, my daughter was born in, I worked, I worked on the floor until April 5th, 2008. And my daughter right. was born on April 12th. <laughs> Wow. And then we moved, we left New York May 6th, I think. And we traveled with her for about a year, less than That's a year. Incredible. We ended up, yeah, we ended up in Hong Kong in February of 2009. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we- there are about 100 questions uh, <laughs> from that. I mean, just imagining you with a newborn traveling for a whole year is pretty impressive. But, but just going back on the Nobu experience, it's very interesting how you really got to sort of see exactly how everything worked from the outside to the inside. And, and, and so you, it, it's, it is quite clear to me how much you learn from that experience. Yeah. I mean, to this day, like it, I reference it or, or mm. I, even if I don't outwardly express it like when I think of how to make decisions for our restaurants or if in any business a lot of times it's through like 
how were those procedures established there? How did they manage mm-hmm. to scale globally? How did, you know, like, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy no. to create an environment where your staff are still with you after 25 years. That's like, incredible. Yeah. It still, to me, is, is just... It's like the, the Bible of hospitality, you would say. To me, absolutely. Like, yeah. I feel I'm always grateful that, you know, Howard gave me that chance because, Mm. you know, quite honestly, I'm sure I would have ended up working somewhere else also, you know, maybe at that caliber, but I have no idea if I ever would have gotten that type of opportunity Mm -hmm. to learn that much. No, absolutely. And how did your first restaurant come about then? What, what sort of triggered you uh, so, well Matt and I who's my business partner who's the mm. father of my children but we're not together we haven't been right. together since 2010 um we had always like I was living in New York since 2002 Matt and I met in Calgary during that year I spent in Calgary because he's right. from Calgary so we uh we were friends like best friends immediately and then one summer I went to Vancouver where he had moved and he was a chef at this restaurant there so I worked part-time while I was just like hanging out in Vancouver for the summer Mm -hmm. and then him and I that's when we started dating right so I moved I mean I went back to New York because I was definitely not giving up New York for Vancouver at that point in my life (laughs) I was like no 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 (laughs) like I just got my work permit I'm getting a green card like I'm going back and so Matt came he moved he left Vancouver and moved to New York and right around the same time as I went to Nobu because then I was like oh yeah like I can get a job at Nobu. Why don't you go apply at Masa? And Masa had just opened. Masa was the most, ex- it might still be, the most expensive restaurant in the U.S. or North America. Oh, really? Wow. It was in the new Time Warner AOL building on Colomb- in Columbus Circle, right next to Per Se. So anyway, you, and Matt was like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm not going there. I'm like, listen, just take your knives in and see what they say. Like you're dedicated. You're, you're looking for a mentor. You're looking for a teacher. So start at the top and work your way down. And he hired him. So Matt got the job at Masa. Yeah. And so we were both working. He was on 59th. I was on 57th, two blocks away from each other, both in these high end Japanese restaurants. Um, and we were going to move to Japan until Lily came and then we're like well that doesn't seem so smart Japan is a little bit too insular um, Mm -hmm. to just settle there so that's why we traveled and we so Zuma restaurant group which is basically like I mean I love the guy who started it but it in you know it's kind of like a version of Nobu that was born in London um they were on their global expansion, you know, uh, they were, they were working on their global expansion. And so they obviously had deployed some of their like top, top, um, level team to New York to look for talent. And they found Matt and I, and they were like, do you guys want to, you know, you can go and work in Turkey or, I don't can't even remember the locations. Dubai. Dubai was a big one. Mm. And we were like, no, no, no. Like, no. Matt was so anti that type of restaurant. He had just sure. obviously, like, he was at Masa. There's 28 seats. And, like, that's it. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. He was not ready. He was just so obsessed with that intricacy and craftsmanship that he was like, there's absolutely no way. And so we traveled for nine months, I guess. And then we were like, what are we going to do? Like, where do we want to live? And we both did not want to go back to New York yet. We thought about LA, but we just weren't ready to like settle and we wanted Mm -hmm. to travel more. And so we were like, okay, let's call Zuma. Like, let's see, let's (laughs) see where they'll, let's see where they'll give us a job. Uh, and so we called them and they flew us to London the next day 
And wow. Matt was given a job as a sous chef. And so Lily was like seven months old, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they flew us to London. Matt was training as a sous chef. And then while we were in London, and like P.S., this was my first time in London. It's winter. Oh, I gosh. don't have, I don't know. All my friends were in like uh, East London. And they right. had put us up near in Kensington near the restaurant, which oh, is gosh. a nice bridge. So I'm like, and Matt's working all day and I have this newborn and I'm like, uh, what am I doing here? Like, I don't have any community. It's so expensive. Like, you know, all these things. And so anyway, it was fine. Let's see what, let's see what happens. So then Matt comes home one day and he's like, um, so I think they had a different plan. They've offered me the executive chef position in Hong Kong. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I guess they just opened Hong Kong and they want to, they already want to replace the executive chef. And I was like, okay, yeah, anywhere but here. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, he's like, no, I, I've heard it's like New York and I, I had never been. I'm like, I, it's so strange. I'd never been, even though my dad was born here. Mm. And so at that point I was like, Matt, I'm not going to Hong Kong for two days to look at it with a newborn with jet lag. Like you go yeah. and you let me know what you think. Like, I trust you. And so he came and he was like, I think you'll like it. It's way more like New York and it's, there's no winter. And I was like, okay, fine. Let's go. <laughs> no winter. <laughs> that probably so helped. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So then we moved and we got here in February of 09 and um, I really hated it actually in the beginning again, cause I just didn't have, I was in New York for so long, like, mm. and I, all of a sudden I was not now all of a sudden I was the dependent, which I never am. And I was a mom. I had no help. I had no family. I had no friends. Mm. So it was very, it was a really hard, let's say six months where yeah, I was I like, you know too. what? I'm going back. Uh, and then I just, I just basically joined the yoga studio here and that became like my saving grace. And through that, so then I was like, okay, we're here. Let's, let's figure this out. And for the seven and a half years I was in New York, always practicing yoga. I never had the time to go and do a teacher training because it was always like 30 days in upstate New York and you couldn't do it on the weekend or in the morning. It was like, you had to take off a month. I'm like, that's not realistic. So when I was in Hong Kong, started doing yoga, I realized this was my time to get my teacher training done. Mm -hmm. And I found the studio that was all Indian teachers. And like the owner of the studio, his father is his teacher who still runs this old school yoga college in um in uh chennai like wow yeah like south india like like the most legit yoga i've ever done in my whole life like blew my mind i was like wow i do realize that i've been doing like the western version of yoga since i started because obviously that's all there is when you're in the west right Mm, of course so all of a sudden i was like my mind was blown by this, you know, different type of yoga. Like, I don't want to say the real type of yoga because every yoga is, is great. But anyway, I found, I found my teacher in this man and it went, it, I just, I became, I got my first like basic 200 hours and then he hired me to teach at the studio. I was like the first non Indian first um, teach first student that he had graduated to be hired. Amazing. Um, Yeah. And then I did all his advanced level teacher trainings and then I taught with him. So I was like his teaching assistant. I traveled with him. That was such an incredible time of my life. Actually. Mm. Um, I got pregnant again during this time. I practiced in yoga till the day I gave birth. Um, And then that was March 2011. 
Matt's two-year Zuma contract had ended in February, and I had written the Yardbird business plan, I think, in 2008 is the first one that I have dated. We had started writing it when we were in New York, and then I finished it in Hong Kong, and it was written for Vancouver. We were supposed to move back there to be closer to our right. family. And just to be clear for anyone listening, Yardbird is your restaurant, and yeah. so you had... Uh, that's interesting that you started with a business plan and you just kept going at it and looking into it and building it. Um, but you always knew it was going to happen. It's just, it was a question of time. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And it was also a question of interest. So by the time I, I was always going to write it and, and mm. I was at the point when Matt was done at Zuma and we had explored Vancouver, we already had our investor. Our investor was willing to buy the building uh, Amazing. Went, to, went to Vancouver, the Olympics were about to happen. And so mm-hmm. every Vancouver real estate agent had no time for us. And like the market's going to be so hot, blah, blah, blah. We're like, okay, sure. Now, just mm-hmm. to note, that was one of the least successful Olympics of all time, <laughs> literally. And, you know, the space we wanted basically like the energy in Vancouver when we went, don't get me wrong. I love Vancouver, but it was just, it, all signs were pointing to staying in Hong Kong. Like right. our investor was in Hong Kong. And then when we got back here, this guy who was our first investor was like, I found a space for you. And I signed the lease. And we were like, okay. It was very like, we were so young and naive, <laughs> like all kinds of things. But, you know, it was fine. We had ba- we had built out. We did have a plan. We did build out a forecast, you know, albeit the ones we build now are insanely more, more complicated and strategic. Um, and then I was so involved in, like, yoga was my life. And right. I didn't want to go back to hospitality. Like, I was, it's, you know, hospitality is not a healthy business. It's a lot of drinking. It's a lot of late nights. You're, you know, it's... Yeah. It doesn't, and also, it's not conducive. With two children as well. I can imagine that was on your mind as well. Yeah. I mean, all of those things. Yeah. So I told Matt, I was like, okay, I will definitely help you open it. I'll do all the training and like help you get it going. And then I don't want to do that every day. <laughs> what I said. And so then we, you know, we open uh, meanwhile, my son was born in March and so this is all happening. He's, you know, he's zero, but Hong Kong also has, you know, help. You can have domestic help at a very affordable price, which changes everything for a working mom. Like it's a game changer. Yeah. Um, so we open Yardbird, get everything going. And again, I just, it's the same feeling I had at Nobu or, and yeah, kind of at Nobu where it was like putting on a, no, what's a better, I'm horrible at these idioms. Uh, it was like riding a bike, it was sure. like putting on, putting on a jacket that fit perfectly. Like this is absolutely what I was born to do. I mean, yoga is a huge part of my life still. And that I believe health and wellness is going to be my next career. I mm-hmm. know it will be, but in, you know, this opening yard bird, and just realizing that it's actually something that I'm really good at. It's a skill set that I have. And then it was, then there were obviously there was no turning back. I had to, like I had to repurpose and reprioritize what I was spending my time on and clearly building a business, not only to take care of my family, but also just, it's great to be your own boss and to be able to make autonomous decisions, which I'd never done before. This was my mm. first and Matt's first entrepreneurial effort. And so that yeah. was in 2011 and we just turned nine last July. Wow. And we, yeah, we opened our second restaurant Ronin, uh, 2012, 2013. I can't remember. Mm. I think it's two years younger. Yeah. And like, obviously from there, we've gone on to do a bunch of other F and B things. That's incredible. That's how it happened. 
<laughs> I love how you're just saying it like very <laughs> nonchalant. Um, what I find fascinating with uh, talking to you and what I really want to talk to you is that kind of it's so hard to start restaurants. Um, it's always been hard, right? And for you to just launch not only one but two very successful restaurants um, to doing it to that high caliber, um, and I can imagine there's been a lot of highs and lows, you know, it's very impressive. Yeah. Um, because I think what's what I find fascinating with restaurants and, and that kind of hospitality business is because you don't just have to create great food, which is hard enough in itself, but it's also about having, you know, um, a vision for it, a brand and for people to buy into it. Could you tell me a little bit more about that world? What what sort of um, how did Yardbird sort of start in your head and what was it kind of your vision at the time? Uh, so our Matt and our my first restaurant concept was for this like Vietnamese pho and um, uh, what do you call it? Banh mi restaurant that we wanted to open in Whistler because we I don't know why anyway. <laughs> So mm. that was like our first idea. And then when we were living in New York, that was sort of like Vancouver centric, I guess, because we were in Vancouver for a bit. And then like once Matt and I started dating, literally all we would do would be like concept restaurant ideas or like write menus for things, which was, you know, it wasn't like a, it didn't, it wasn't like a forced thing it was just like oh this would be cool oh what if we did that sort of thing and then mm. and then that sort of got like tabled when we were in New York and we were both just working such intense hours like intense jobs yeah at such a high level but our saving like our favorite moment of the week was Sunday because we both had Sundays off which is also why we have Sunday's grocery when our daughter's middle name is Sunday um, mm. we would eat yakitori on Sunday. We had our favorite right. restaurant was called Yakitori Tato. It's probably still there, uh, on 58th between 8th and 9th, I think, or 55th. Mm -hmm. Uh, so every, literally, I would say at least three out of four Sundays a month, that's where we would go. And anytime someone visited us, we would take them there. And there was this, I mean, clearly we both love Japan. But it's just like there's something so easy and fun about eating really good chicken off a stick and just yes. drinking really cold beer and fresh shochu highballs. Like I could do that every single day for the rest of my life and be happy. <laughs> and so Yardbird, once we once we left New York and we started to really conceptualize what our restaurant would look like when it was going to happen. We were like, I think it's, you know, it's got to be yakitori. That's what we, like, find so much pleasure in. Mm. And obviously just, like, the drinking and the cult, you know, just, like, the fun aspect. It's so casual by nature, right? It's, it's like an isakaya. Yes. And so then you look at, like, adding on the layers of, you know, Matt's training at Masa and, like, how, what the skills as a chef that he learned through that process, even though, mm -hmm. like, he never, never would want to be a sushi chef or, or do that, but it doesn't matter how you apply those skills, you can do it to anything. And even for me, like, what I learned at Nobu, I have no interest, we have no interest in opening a fine dining restaurant where everything is so, you know, I would yes. say uptight, square, square. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, polished. And so we were just like, you know what, the Yardbird, again, we just came up with that name because it was like, you know, we want it to be neighborhood and we want it to feel like it's in your backyard and it's chicken. Like, it's literally mm. not a romantic. It just, it was just a, it was a name that we just had and we were using it. Um, we're like, we can just apply everything we've learned to our yakitori concept. Like, you know, and you've been there, so you realize that, like, although it's casual in nature, you know, the service, the level of service, the execution of the food, yes. um, the details that have gone into it, those are the things that we brought from, you know, Masa and Nobu. Yeah. 
I completely see see that. And I think that's what was um, really interesting and different, which is, you know, everyone wants to have great service and great food, but also it doesn't mean that it has to be high-end and it's stuffy and and boring. Um, And what I love with what you created is that kind of like, as you said, sort of backyard sort of really... Uh, comfortable uh, restaurant and you know I also love your your decoration as well like sort of very on trend um, but you know just fun and and with great food and great service yeah yeah I mean we just we wanted to create a place that felt like our house that we could just entertain at and that's yeah definitely how the first yardbird felt and the new one is a lot bigger but I don't know. I mean, I do know how, but the magic that arts team brings and mm-hmm. how it's translated to such a bigger footprint still, I mean, I'm just so proud of what we've been able to mm. achieve and really that falls on, on our team. Yeah, that's incredible. So you sort of touched a little bit about kind of what's next, because obviously you've started a few, you know, two, three restaurants and then um and then you're looking maybe into wellness what, what's kind of next for you i mean we're we have launched our sunday's whiskey made in japan which has been also an arduous journey but rewarding that's launched globally this month so landing in north wow. america and japan hong kong um europe will be soon so that's maybe. a big that's a big part and that's a completely different business. Like dealing with alcohol globally is a nightmare. Don't do it. Whoever's (laughs) listening, don't do it. Don't get into the alcohol business. I have about a hundred questions just on that. (laughs) We'll have a part two. Exactly. Um, We have to. And I'm also, um, equally putting effort into, uh, I hate the word health and wellness, although it's, it's, I guess it rings just like F and B, but anyway, I am working on a health and wellness, um, business with, which has many different pillars to it with, uh, a very good friend of mine who's based in New York. And so we've been challenged with COVID world, but I think I'm sure. we are working on something that will, start to live in Hong Kong, hopefully before the end of the year. And that will be rooted in fitness. So we'll start with fitness and it will grow from there. Um, And other than that, I mean, I'm really proud. We have a digital creative agency called Hecho, which was, again, born out of us doing our own marketing and comms for our restaurants and our own brands. Mm. And then, you know, helping our friends. And now it's so now it's a real agency. We have like real clients. So (laughs) that's been really fun because, you know, I think what Matt and I have really discovered over the years and years of not only knowing each other, but working together is that we have endless ideas. There's no like, Mm. and ideas for concepts, businesses, what we like, what we hate, all that stuff. And now that we have this agency, um, we can really exercise some of those creative muscles and not have to open a full restaurant to do that, which is clearly like not ideal and you know, too much work. Um, and so you mean, what do you mean by that? Do you mean you can have ideas and then get others to execute it? Yeah, like people, like we get to build brands for people. Yeah. You know, people are like, I want, I need a logo, I need a website, I need a brand voice, I need mm. strategy, I need social media, I need content, I need, you know, I need to launch this, like holistically. Yeah. Um, we just opened our our concept Rotitori last June, which is the one that we're focusing on expanding on. It's fast casual. It's Japanese style rotisserie chicken. It's honestly, it's so good. It's delicious. Mm. I, I could eat it more often than I eat Yardbird. Um, and so we opened it inside this beautiful food hall in central Hong Kong. And right. what's cool and what really sort of sums up, I think, who Matt and I are and who the people we choose to work with and who have worked with us for so long 
who are also partners um, and shareholders of Rotatory, some of our longest standing like team members from Yardbird, um, is we, we went into this food hall. It's called Base Hall, if anyone is listening mm-hmm. and is in Hong Kong. Um, and we got to not only like build the identity and brand of Base Hall, working with, um, you know, the landlord and an owner of it, and the interior architects. So we like, we, we got to shape that entire space. And then we also got to live in that space with Roti Tori as a vendor, one of 10, but, and now we still do all the marketing communications, content creation for base hall entirely. So it's like, we, you know, we obviously have skin in the game because we wanted Roti Tori to succeed, but just on a bigger picture, like we want base hall to succeed and we want every vendor in there to succeed. Mm. And for, you know, I would, I'm proud that I, I believe we have built this team and community of people who really care about each other. And it's not about me or you only, you know, we think about how we can help everyone and so many of the people who have worked with us have gone on to create their own brands and their own businesses. And we all still help each other and they all still feed back into each other. Mm. And I, I think that that is, that's definitely something that is worth more than money or worth more than anything you can really buy. Yeah. And on that, that was going to be my <clears> final <throat> question to you is you know what do you think are the skill sets that have been the most beneficial to you and to your kind of entrepreneurial journey I would say my theater training no just kidding (laughs) well no I think I think the theater (laughs) training I I definitely it sounds like you know as you said it sort of gives you that (sighs) confidence to speak to others it's it's quite a basic but very important skill set I want to test that theory. <laughs> um, <laughs> you already are through this podcast. <laughs> right. Exactly. Let's see. Let's see if anyone takes that advice. Um, you know, I don't know. What do I think? I think that first of all, there's so many simple things you can do every single day, every single minute that change how you behave and are, are impacting everyone around you. And that is like, I, you know, I work with people, people don't work for me. I mean, you could be, Mm. you know, you could say it in all kinds of ways, but you know, I don't make decisions autonomously, you know, it's always with a team and, you know, sure. There are times where we have stronger opinions and maybe they they're tied to something financial and it, not everyone knows the whole reason behind it. But I would say 99% of the time we run an extremely democratic um, mm. business where everyone's opinion counts. Um, and then the best piece of advice I have ever received in my entire professional life um, was from a very good friend of mine, Nick Jamey, who's one of the co-founders of Sweetgreen in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And very early on, this was probably like seven years ago, and you know he had they had just opened their Nomad location, so they were already growing, but nothing to where they are now, which is so incredible. And he told me, um, I don't even know how he we arrived at this, but I said, give me some advice, like tell me when you, you know, what, how are you building? And he said, I always look for people smarter than me. I always hire people smarter than me. Like I want smart people around me. And I think way too often, uh, people don't want to be challenged. People don't want to appear to not know something. There's a fear in, in not being the smartest person, you know, like, and I, I've never felt that, and I never had it articulated that way until Nick said that to me that day. And now it's like what I lead with, you know. It's like I, the minute I have budget to hire someone, I want to hire someone who can teach me something, who can teach everybody something they don't know. 
And I think living with that sort of mentality of like, you're just like, you got to keep learning. And if you keep Mm. learning, then, then the more, you know, the more power you have, quite honestly. Completely. What a great way to end this podcast. This is a brilliant (laughs) piece of advice. I I completely agree. Surround yourself with people who are more clever than you, but also can teach you and constantly be willing to learn. Um, Thank you so much, Lindsay. That's been so eye-opening and um, I wish you all the best success, especially with what's going on with COVID-19. But thank you. It, sounds, it sounds like you're doing very well already. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Way Up. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please look out for more empowering interviews in the weeks to come. Now, I have a couple of special favors to ask. Firstly, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. It really helps generate exposure for the podcast and allows a wider audience to get access to these really important topics. Secondly, if you know of anyone else that would enjoy this show and benefits from the topics I cover, then do please share the podcast Um, by sharing this With just a couple of people, it will just help spread the good message and hopefully support the women this podcast was designed to reach. Finally, if you can follow This Way Up podcast or One Word on Instagram, you'll get notified of future episodes. And the idea is that together we can build a powerful community and hopefully start to change the creative industry. That's it from me. Until next time. 